Good morning. I'd like to make you all very welcome to our Crescent Online Sunday morning service this Father's Day. A special welcome to all fathers who are among our listeners. Whether you are a church member or are joining us online this morning, you are most welcome. Today we are commencing a new series entitled Christian Counterculture, looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Our speaker this morning is Jim Crooks. Our opening hymn, Be Thou My Vision, is attributed to a 6th century Christian Irish poet. The translated version that we love to sing dates back over a hundred years. It encourages us to take our eyes off ourselves and our circumstances and place our focus on our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's praise God together as we sing these great words. join together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for how you demonstrated your great love for us in sending your only Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, into this world. We thank you for his life here among us as he made known your character and the values that are evident in your kingdom in contrast to the kingdoms of this world. We thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross, taking our place and the punishment we deserved so that we could know our sins forgiven and can be brought into your family. We have been struck forcibly in recent weeks by the injustices clearly seen in our world that break your heart and the fragility of life as this virus continues to be transmitted around the world. We remember in particular countries currently at the centre of the spread in South and Central America 
and also in the nation of India. We ask in your mercy to protect these vulnerable communities and help those on the front line in such danger. We thank you that we have seen fewer cases and deaths in our own country and pray that you will give wisdom to our governments both local and nationally as they make decisions to ease lockdown and restart the economy. We pray for all families that have suffered bereavement or hardship throughout this difficult period and ask that you will mobilise your church worldwide to bring comfort and help to those in need. We also remember those in our church family here and overseas who are going through difficult times, be that their own health or the health of loved ones, loss of jobs or the fear of risks to future employment, those who are isolated or lonely, missing even the contact of family members, and those continuing to work on the frontline services. We pray that this morning as we sing hymns of praise and listen to your word, we will have open ears to hear your message and may our eyes be lifted up to focus on your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Each week we have been enjoying our kids' action songs. This morning we're going to join Rachel as we sing and do the actions to the song Counting on God. After that, Tony Cullen will bring us an update about our Crescent missionaries who are serving God overseas.
Crescent has always had a strong focus on both local and international mission. Today we want to remember our members who are working overseas, so please join with me as we pray. Father, we come before you this morning in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for uh, Jonathan and Esther Campbell and their family who are uh, working in South Africa. We pray for Jonathan especially as he teaches at the OM Centre and as he leads uh, studies online uh, for the students. We thank you that he is also involved in food distribution uh, to the poor. We realise that at this time of winter in South Africa it is particularly difficult for people. We also pray for Esther and the children, Rebecca, Samuel, Sarah, David and Joshua. We pray that you would protect them and care for them at this time and help them as they try to balance uh, home learning and also uh, their normal school, uh, which is gradually returning. We pray uh, that you would protect uh, them as they go to school and spend time with their teachers and friends. We also think about their visa application, which has been delayed at present. And we pray that when things get up and running again, that they will be granted an extension to their visa. We also remember the Anandal family, Heather, Pranesh, Ruben, Alona and Megan. We pray for them uh, at this time in South Africa, as there has been a surge in the COVID-19 cases. We pray that they will be protected and that you provide both for them and for the people um, whom they work with and the communities that they serve. We pray that you will give them wisdom to, to uh, decide on the areas in which they should focus their energies. We pray in particular for Heather's work uh, with the local schools. We thank you for that project and for her team. We pray that you would help her as she supports uh, the teachers and the children uh, at this time. We remember the work that Pranesh does in mentoring and coaching, and we pray uh, for him as he does this online at present, and also for the leadership roles that he has in OM. We think of Harry and Stephanie Laman in Central Asia. Lord, we thank you for uh, their commitment to serve you. And we just pray particularly for them both at the minute as they are unwell, Lord. Uh, for the symptoms they, they have that seem uh, to be uh, coronavirus, Lord, we just pray that, uh, that they would both recover. We thank you that Harry has started to show signs uh, of improvement. And we pray that you will bring them both back uh, to full health and that you would strengthen them. We pray for them in their isolation at present, that they would have the energy and enthusiasm to persevere with their language learning. We thank you for uh, the contacts that they have around the area that they are living in. And we pray for Harry in particular as he reads the scriptures with the security staff, that these people will develop a love for the Lord Jesus Christ. We turn our minds to Japan and think of Noel and Eileen Hamilton. We were sad to hear the news that their grandson Ellis was taken into neonatal intensive care. We just pray for him that he will recover uh, from these breathing issues and that they will be able to repair the cleft in his palate. We think of Mark and Hannah, his parents, uh, at this time that you will be with them. And also for Noel as he uh, comes up to his oncology review at the end of the month, that this will be a positive appointment uh, for him. We thank you that the assembly at Koshigaya uh, have uh, begun to meet again. We pray for them that you will bless them and also as they continue their online services that these uh, will reach out uh, to many of the people in their community. As Noel continues to teach at Tokyo University we realize that the next few months will be very different uh, as the students won't be on campus but we pray for innovative ways for Noel to make contact with them and to share the gospel. And finally, we think of Luis and Anlor Mostacero and their boys who are currently in the States. We know their desire is to go back to Peru, but the borders are closed. So we ask that you use these next few months to prepare them for their return to Peru. We ask that Luis's application 
uh, for a student visa will be successful and that they can stay on in Chicago. We pray for Timothy as he commences his studies in medicine and that he will be able to do this online and also for Alessandro as he returns uh, to school that you would uh, encourage uh, him. Peru has been particularly badly affected by COVID-19 so we pray that you would uh, protect uh, the people out there. We pray for Luis's family and for their friends and the church members and that you would help them at this time. For those who are sick, uh, that they would be healed. Father, we thank you for uh, our missionaries. We thank you for the work that you are doing throughout the world and we pray that you would uh, be with them today, that you will give them opportunities to serve you and that people will come to know the Lord Jesus and will be built up in their faith. We ask all these things in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen. We are indebted to our Crescent musicians and singers who have been recording our hymns during this period of lockdown. Our next hymn is one written by City of Light called Yet Not I But Through Christ In Me. The first verse states what gift of grace is Jesus, my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold my hope is My life is wholly bound to His. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing. All is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me.
Our new series looks at specific teaching given by the Lord Jesus, known as the Sermon on the Mount. It's recorded in Matthew's Gospel account. Our speaker this morning is Jim Crooks, an elder here at Crescent and one of our regular Bible teachers. His subject is True Blessing and Purpose. Before Jim speaks to us, Carl E. Curry will read this morning's passage from Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 verses 1 to 16 Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, the scriptures record a moment when the Apostle Paul uh, walked around the city of Athens and he inspected the various false gods, the idols that dominated that culture's thinking. Every society worships something. If the idols of our culture were as visible as the ones in Athens, we would see that our main god is power. Power is the principle that governs how we think and act in our society. Look behind contemporary feminism and you will find the worship of power. Or consider the ideologies that lie behind the current debate over racism in the United States. These ideologies tell us that our lives make sense once we accept the idea of a binary struggle between an oppressed people and the oppressor. So the complex issue of racial justice is reduced to a power struggle between oppressed black people and an oppressive white heteropatriarchy. Now, in one sense, that's exactly what we should expect to find. It's often been said that we live in a post-truth world. The idea of objective truth has been jettisoned, and so nowadays truth is just a strong inner conviction within the heart of an individual. But think what happens to a society which rejects truth. In a world without truth, all you're left with is power. In the first four chapters of, the, of his gospel, Matthew presents to us Jesus Christ as the real authority in the universe. He is the true king. But the really strange thing about the Lord Jesus is that he doesn't rule by power. He doesn't establish a political kingdom by winning a power struggle or even by consensus building. He establishes his kingdom by teaching by building truth into people's hearts. He transforms them, changing them into willing citizens of his kingdom. Chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew's Gospel record what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And here we get to hear the king teach truth. It is our privilege over these next six weeks to study these chapters together. The early verses of chapter 5 set the scene. We can imagine Jesus in the centre of this gathering, and around him sit his disciples. And around them stood a crowd of unbelievers. 
And that scene of two concentric circles around Christ provides us with an important lesson. The Lord is speaking truth to us here, not to the world around us. So we don't get to sit back and say, I hope this does you good uh, to the non-Christian. Our job is to obey the truth that we are taught, live it out, so that our own society experiences truth incarnated in our daily lives. In this first study, we will consider the first 16 verses of chapter 5 together. Uh, I'd be grateful if you kept the text open in front of you as we move through it. But we will begin with a bit of an overview of the entire sermon. For my breakfast this morning, I ate two slices of toast and a cup of coffee. Now, I could have looked at the toast on the plate in one of two ways. According to one view, I could see it as a product of my own work. I paid for the bread and the butter, but that is a shallow analysis. Just think how hard God had to work to put toast on my plate. I'm not just talking about his creatorial genius in designing the DNA of wheat plants. For all of last year, he had to keep the sun working and stable. He used the big heavy planets in our solar system to protect the earth from asteroids. He maintained the weather system, giving just the right balance of rain and sunshine for the wheat to grow. He worked quietly behind the scenes, keeping society stable and ordered so that farmers and bakers and retailers could go about their daily lives. He even cared for the cows whose milk was used to produce the butter I spread on my toast. My point here is that God works tirelessly in the background to give us things that we nearly always take for granted. In this sermon, the Lord Jesus is determined to reconnect us to his Father in heaven. So he teaches us to pray, Father, give us this day our daily bread. He wants us to break out of a materialistic worldview and start to see life as a blessing from a generous, loving creator. The Old Testament talks about another king who was a teacher. This king wrote a cynical piece of literature called the Book of Ecclesiastes. He describes the universe as a closed physical system. His description is a brilliant depiction of what today we call materialism. Everything reduces to a meaningless cycle of nature. The teacher says, The sun rises and the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it rises. All things are full of weariness, and a man cannot utter it. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. One of the main purposes of the Sermon on the Mount is to shatter that false idea. We have a Father in heaven, says the Lord Jesus. Open your eyes and see that behind the processes of nature, there is this big-hearted, benevolent, generous Father. A Father who works tirelessly for our good. His character is morally perfect. It is beautiful. I don't know about you, but one of the most difficult things in life is to work hard for someone who takes you for granted. Someone who never even thinks to thank you, to express gratitude. Well, says Jesus, our Father in heaven makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. In other words, he doesn't just work hard for people who love him and who are grateful to him. He works for billions of people who completely ignore him. They never show gratitude to him. They only take notice of him when they want to blame somebody, when things go wrong. But he still puts bread on their table every morning. What a beautiful moral character our Heavenly Father has. The second great purpose of this sermon is to transform us so that we are perfect like our Father in Heaven. And this teaching is at the heart of the Christian response to the ideologies in our society that reduce life to a power struggle between oppressed groups and a white heteropatriarchy. Lord Jesus teaches us that the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. Christianity has revolutionized the world already, but it created that transformation by working from the inside out. You won't find any grand political theories like Marxism or critical race theory in the Bible. Because the gospel works from the inside out. Don't you know, says Jesus, that what comes out of a man is what defiles him? From within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, 
deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. And the simply astonishing idea in this Sermon on the Mount is that Christ offers us heart level righteousness. He offers to transform our hearts so that we become like our Father in heaven. Instead of having a heart full of anger and lust and anxiety, we can have a heart which is morally beautiful. We can become men and women of integrity, loyal to others, with the capacity to love even our enemies. Instead of being mean-spirited and selfish, we can become generous and full of grace. But, you might be thinking, how could such a change be possible? I simply don't have those resources within myself to behave like that. Well, says Christ in chapter 7, Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be open to you. Our Father knows very well that we cannot make this change using our own efforts or resources. But we can receive the spiritual resources we need when we ask him for them in faith. Now all that context helps us to make sense of the famous opening statements of the sermon, the so-called Beatitudes. There are eight great statements. They each begin with the word blessed. At a superficial level, the word blessed can mean happy. When the Lord Jesus uses the term blessed, he means something deeper, something less superficial than mere happiness. He means that God has pronounced his value upon that thing. And knowing that we have something of real value generates a sense of quiet gladness in the believer's heart. So that's how we should understand the term blessed. It's the quiet sense of gladness which comes from the knowledge that we have gained something of real value. Back in the Old Testament, we read of another mount. We call it Mount Sinai. On that mountain, God gave us the Ten Commandments. They were divided into two parts, two tablets. The first half dealt with our relationship with God, and the second half dealt with our relationship with each other. And these eight statements follow the same pattern. The first four relate to our relationship to God, and the second four deal with our relationship with other human beings. There's also a progression in the statements. It's helpful to think of them as stepping stones. But they are, of course, very strange and counterintuitive. It'll be helpful for you to follow the text as I move through these eight statements. So, where does this journey into truth begin? Well, says the Lord, let's begin by valuing those who are poor in spirit. I am poor in spirit if I have a contrite and humble spirit. I am poor in spirit if I recognize that I am spiritually bankrupt. I have nothing to offer God, nothing to plead, nothing with which to buy the favor of heaven. As the old hymn once put it, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. So if you can look at the moral beauty of the Father's heart and say to yourself, I could never be like that. I simply don't have the capacities or the resources to act as he does. Well, then you've got to the starting line. You've recognized your own spiritual poverty. That point can be applied at the level of a culture as well as to an individual. Our society will only take steps to health if it begins by acknowledging that it is spiritually bankrupt that it has reduced life to a soulless struggle for power. But we have to take another step. It's not enough to recognize that we are spiritually bankrupt. We must mourn that reality. When Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, he isn't saying that we should grin through the funeral of a loved one. He means that we should mourn and bewail our spiritual poverty. And the technical term for that mourning process is repentance. It's a deep recognition that we are sinners. Notice that repentance isn't just a recognition that we have sinned. Jesus' diagnosis goes deeper than our behavior. It goes to the roots of our identity and our nature. We are iniquitous. I remember an old preacher once explaining these different levels of sin. He talked about a time when as a child his mother allowed him to play in the front garden but warned him strictly not to climb over the garden fence into the street beyond. He said... I looked over the garden fence. That was temptation. I climbed over the fence. That was the practice of sin. But iniquity? 
Iniquity was that dark thing inside me that wanted to go over the fence, that wanted to break the rule. To repent, we must stand in the light of God's character and admit to him and to ourselves that we are iniquitous and full of sinful practice. Now that is a tough diagnosis and it has caused many people to walk away from the sermon at verse 4. Another group will leave after verse 5 because here the Lord says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. You see, it's one thing for me to admit privately to God, uh, to admit to him that I'm a miserable sinner. But it takes real meekness to allow one of you to call me a miserable sinner. But meekness is evidence that repentance was real. And the paradox is that meek people, not the boasting, insecure loudmouths, meek people really get to appreciate what life is about. They get to live in this earth and enjoy it in a way that passes by boastful and proud people. Another evidence of real repentance is what we might call a change in appetite. Some people think that Christians are people who try very hard to repress their desires and try to live uh, a life free from desire. Well, if you think that, you're confusing Christianity with Buddhism. Christianity thinks that desires are great. The important thing is to desire the right things. And every true believer is marked by a spiritual appetite. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. In other words, they really appreciate God's moral beauty. They are deeply attracted to his kindness, his generosity and truthfulness and uh, his patience and humility. And they long to be more like God. In the words of the last verse of chapter 5, they want to be perfect as their heavenly father is perfect. So that's the first half of the blessed statements. Now we turn to how a Christian treats other human beings. Real Christians enjoy being merciful. They don't get a buzz out of fantasizing about revenge. They feel dislocated when a relationship gets broken and they love to respond to an apology with a big hearted dose of mercy. So they get to see mercy for themselves. They catch a glimpse of the cascade of mercy that flows continuously out of the divine heart. Let's move on to verse 8. Real Christians aren't hypocrites. They aren't full of guile and deceit. They're single-minded or innocent and pure-hearted. Their motives aren't corrupted by hidden agendas or political games. And people who live like this start really to appreciate God. In the language of verse 8, they get to see him. They develop an increasing appreciation of God's moral grandeur. They see his moral qualities as perhaps the most beautiful thing in their lives. It's like someone who catches a glimpse of the Alps or the Rocky Mountains. The grandeur of God fills their vision and they find it breathtaking. Real Christians are peacemakers. They love harmony and work to reconcile people whose relationships have been damaged by discord or hurt. Real Christians love to see reconciliation, not just between people, but they love to see reconciliation between men and women, men and women who make their peace with God. So the evangelist is a peacemaker. Now, you, the work of a peacemaker is not an easy one. Proverbs 26 verse 17 says, like one who grabs a stray dog by the ears is someone who rushes into a quarrel, not their own. Peacemaking isn't for the faint-hearted. Usually, you end up getting bitten. When it comes to the job of establishing peace between men and God, the Christian can expect to be persecuted for the sake of Christ. But your wounds are medals of honour in the kingdom of heaven. You will have been counted worthy to suffer for the Saviour's sake. So I've done enough to see the outline of what we might call heart-level righteousness. A true believer is someone who has recognised their spiritual poverty, has mourned not only their behaviour but their nature, People like that receive comfort. I could have put that more personally. Repentant sinners receive the comforter. They receive God the Holy Spirit into their lives. And thus, new spiritual appetites start to develop. They love to show mercy and never nurse hatred or grudges. They aren't hypocrites. They love to establish harmony between people and between people and God, even if they get hurt in the process. So let's now consider the second part of the chapter, verses 13 through 16. And the Lord uses two metaphors here, salt and light. Let me just explain that bit about salt, losing its saltiness before we do anything else. It's a bit of a technical thing. Apparently in ancient times, if I asked you for a pile of salt, 
you would give me a white-looking powder that did contain sodium chloride. But it would also contain other silicates and, and other minerals. So if I left my pile of salt outside and it rained, the sodium chloride would dissolve away, and now a white-looking powder would remain, but it would have lost its saltiness. I might as well sprinkle some road dirt over my fried egg, as the residue left after the real salt had dissolved away. There is a sharpness to salt. It has a cutting quality. And that matters. Our Lord did not say to his disciples, you are the honey of the world. Usually the Christian voice in society will run counter to the mainstream view, and that takes courage. The pressure to conform, to engage in the virtue signalling that often smothers social media platforms is intense. But our job is to be the salt of the earth, and that will usually mean that we have to say things that are unpopular and which are not on message. In the ancient world, salt was used to stop meat from going rotten. It had to be rubbed well into the meat, and then its preservative quality could get to work. We are called to be the salt of the earth, so that means we need to engage with culture. Too many churches in our tradition have withdrawn from the world. They seem to live in a parallel universe, not making any attempt to stop society from going completely rotten. So the question arises, how do we engage in society? Should we be overtly political? Well, we need to balance this teaching with an equally famous statement that the Lord Jesus made to Pontius Pilate when he said, My kingdom is not of this world, otherwise my servants would fight. Our job is not to set up heaven on earth. We should never confuse the future of society with the future of the church. So the delicate balance between being salt and light is important here. As the salt of the earth, our job is essentially defensive. We're trying to preserve good governance for as long as possible. Now, on occasion, that may require Christians to protest politically. But the Bible regards political activism as a surface issue. The real battle takes place upstream of politics in the realm of ideas. Here, the battle is between truth and lies. So we are acting as the salt of the earth when we argue graciously against our society's view of what a human being is, or its views on sexuality and gender. Uh, there have been times in the history of the church I have to say, when so-called Bible teachers chose to side with cultural idolatries rather than confront them. In January 1861, just before the outbreak of civil war in America, a so-called pastor called Ebenezer Warren preached a message entitled, Scripture Vindicates Slavery. There was standing room only in the church, and his sermon would make any true Christian weep with anger. At one point, Warren said, It is necessary for ministers of the gospel to teach slavery from the pulpit, as it was taught by the holy men of old. Both Christianity and slavery are from heaven. Both are blessings to humanity. Both are to be perpetuated to the end of the time. Now, those words are unspeakably wicked. To utter them from a Christian pulpit is to walk the broad path that leads to destruction. In the context of the current debate over race in the United States, we need to ask, what does it mean to be the salt of the earth? At one level, we hold out the Bible's entirely positive view of ethnic diversity. I was thinking just yesterday of the ethnic slur contained in the question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I happened to be reading Acts 22, and notice that when the risen Christ appeared to Paul, he still called himself Jesus of Nazareth. Now just think about that. The one who sits at the very pinnacle of the universe, far above all powers and authorities, still embraces an ethnicity that people look down upon. So we must call out ethnic nationalism and racism as the ugly and dehumanising evils that they are. But we must also have a counter-cultural message in this situation. We are not the honey of the world. We aren't called to join the virtue signallers of the world. We must speak truth into the issue. And here our job is to expose the underlying idolatries behind critical theory and the ideologies of neo-Marxism. Lying underneath all the talk of white supremacy and white guilt is the idolatrous worship of power. So one of our key jobs is to disentangle the real and difficult injustices faced by people of colour from the false ideologies that seek to exploit those injustices. Our Lord balances the idea of being salt 
with this positive idea of being light. The positive role we have is as the light of the world. We're told explicitly in verse 16 what the light metaphor means. It represents the Christian's good works, his or her behaviour, actions and reactions. So let's imagine one day you get stabbed in the back by a colleague in work. But instead of plotting revenge or descending into bitterness, the non-Christians in your office see you just get on with your job. They might even see you being helpful to the colleague who has wronged you. And in that moment, they will see a little bit of divine light shining through your personality. We can use the light metaphor to apply the Beatitudes to our real daily lives. So maybe this week, you will have the opportunity to be merciful. Instead of getting payback, instead of giving someone a well-deserved slap, you can be perfect like your Heavenly Father and just show a bit of mercy. In that moment, you are being a light to the world. Or perhaps you've fallen into the habit of political thinking. You quite enjoy a bit of plotting and scheming. Or maybe you invariably interpret the actions of fellow believers in political ways. Well, remember that the pure in heart will come to appreciate God most. So try being guileless for a week. Look for the best in other people's motivations, not the worst. And ask the Lord to break unpleasant mental habits that have built up perhaps over years. Bring a bit of light into your relationships. And finally, you may have the opportunity to be a peacemaker. It could be in your wider family circle, or it could be in the workplace. Well, expect to get bitten. But if you can quietly nudge people toward reconciliation, then you're a bit of divine light shining into the world. So we're done for today. Our final hymn reminds us that there is a throne above this world of material stuff. We do not have to live life under the sun because we have a Father in heaven. A Father in heaven whose character is warm and gentle and benevolent. So let us turn to him now in prayer and then we shall sing before the throne of God above. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We just pause and thank you for all your goodness and kindness to us. You do so much for us that we take for granted. So we express our gratitude to the Father of lights, the giver of every good and perfect gift. Lord Jesus, we thank you for teaching us truth. In a world that idolizes power and money, we bless you for revealing this beautiful moral vision of what a human life can be. We freely admit our spiritual bankruptcy, our poverty in spirit. We repent of our iniquity and our sinful actions. And we accept the legitimate strictures that others have spoken to us. Lord, we ask that you develop new appetites within us so that we hunger and thirst for righteousness. Help us this week to be merciful, innocent peacemakers. In your goodness, allow us to help others make peace with you, even if that brings hurt into our lives for a season. Transform us day by day so that we each develop true heart-level righteousness. Lord, you have called us to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We confess to you that sometimes our instinct is to withdraw, to hide away from the complex and difficult issues that bring us into tension with society. But we ask, as a fellowship, that you would use us to inject truth and love into the public square. Lord, we ask that you seal your word up in our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen.